Hello everyone and welcome to the November 9th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The parties in the constitutional challenge to the 2013 lien activation fee case filed by several lien claimants agreed to a final resolution ending the controversial legal battle. The agreement follows a decision in June by the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit that the lien activation fee was constitutionally valid. The Court of Appeals denied a rehearing petition and issued its mandate to the district court in October. Before this case was filed, under SB 863, lien holders were to be afforded until December 31, 2013 to pay lien activation fees. But a preliminary injunction went into effect in 2013, and the DWC deactivated the payment system for these activation fees. As a result, lien holders were unable to pay the fees for 43 days prior to the December 31, 2013 deadline. Thus, the party stipulated that lien holders should be afforded at least 43 more days to pay the activation fees after the payment system is reactivated. And the parties jointly requested that the deadline for activation fee payments be set for December 31, 2015. And the DWC requested that it be given until November 9, 2015 to reactivate the payment systems. This agreement shall have no effect on liens that were dismissed prior to this order. The DIR said it will restore the electronic lien activation fee payment system through JetFile and the EAMS public information search. And now, <clears throat> our crime report. The Department of Justice has reached 70 settlements involving 457 hospitals in 43 states for more than $250 million related to cardiac devices that were implanted in patients. 27 California hospitals were included in the settlement. Irvine-based St. Joseph Health System agreed to pay $2.7 million dollars. Sacramento-based Sutter Health agreed to pay $3 million, and San Diego-based Scripps Hospital agreed to pay $5.6 million. An implantable cardioverter defibrillator, or ICD, is an electronic device that is implanted near and connected to the heart. It detects and treats chaotic, extremely fast, life-threatening heart rhythms called fibrillations, by delivering a shock to the heart, restoring the heart's normal rhythm. It is similar in function to an external defibrillator, except that it is small enough to be implanted in the patient's chest. Only patients with certain clinical characteristics and risk factors qualify for an ICD coverage by Medicare. Medicare coverage for the device, which costs about $25,000, is governed by a National Coverage Determination, or NCD. The NCD is based on clinical trials and the guidance and testimony of cardiologists and other healthcare providers, professional cardiology societies, 
cardiac device manufacturers, and patient advocates. The NCD provides that ICDs generally should not be implemented, implanted in patients who have recently suffered a heart attack or recently had heart bypass surgery or angioplasty. A waiting period, 40 days for a heart attack and 90 days for a bypass or angioplasty, is, given, is to give the heart an opportunity to improve function on its own to the point that an ICD may not be necessary. The NCD expressly prohibits implantation of an ICD during these waiting periods with certain exceptions. The Department of Justice alleged that of the settling hospitals implanted ICDs prohibited by the NCD. Authorities say this is one of the largest whistleblower lawsuits in the United States and represents one of the most significant recoveries to date. Most of the defendants were named in a key Tom or whistleblower lawsuit brought under the Federal False Claims Act. This law permits private citizens to bring lawsuits on behalf of the United States and receive a portion of the proceeds of any settlement or judgment. The lawsuit here was filed by Leatrice Ford Richards, a cardiac nurse, and Thomas Schumann, a healthcare reimbursement consultant. The whistleblowers will receive more than $38 million from these settlements. Adventist Health Systems has agreed to pay $115 million to settle allegations that it violated the False Claim Act by maintaining improper compensation arrangements with referring physicians and by miscoding claims. Adventist is a nonprofit healthcare organization that operates hospitals and other healthcare facilities in 10 states, including California. The allegations arose from two lawsuits filed by whistleblowers. One of them was Sherry Dorsey, a former chief operating officer of the Physicians Enterprise, a division of Adventist Healthcare. She worked at corporate headquarters and reported to top Adventist executives. At a 2012 meeting with these executives, Dorsey raised questions about 85 physicians who were paid above the 90th percentile of benchmarks for their specialties. Many of them were paid $1 million a year and some got 2 or $3 million a year. She alleges it was humanly impossible for each of these doctors to have done that work. That amount of work would normally be attributed to the performance of five, six, or seven full-time doctors in the same field of practice. Dorsey suggested assessments of the coding and billing practices of the physicians to determine if there were any irregularities, but she allegedly was rebuffed because the audits would be too expensive. She was, in essence, told to play ball to not raise too much of a fuss, according to her Atlanta attorney. The other complainant was filed by Michael Payne, Melissa Church, and Gloria Pryor. It describes how Adventist hospitals pay physicians generously even though their practices lose money. The three allege that losses are tolerated because the hospitals know they can 
make more money for those losses from the referrals for inpatient and ancillary services. There were no subpoenas or depositions on the way to the settlement of these two cases. Adventist self-disclosed some violations to the Department of Justice and was given credit for cooperation, and the case moved through with relative speed and no formal litigation. The second-degree murder convictions of a Los Angeles-area physician is the first against a doctor for prescribing massive quantities of addictive and dangerous drugs to patients. A jury of 10 women and two men found 45-year-old Su Ying Lisa Sang guilty of 23 counts, including 19 counts of unlawful controlled substance prescriptions. The guilty verdict marks the first time in the United States where a doctor was convicted of murder for overprescribing these drugs. Sang was convicted of second-degree murder for the deaths of 28-year-old Vu Nguyen, 28, of Lake Forest, 24-year-old Stephen Ogley of Palm Desert, and 21-year-old Joseph Rovero, an Arizona State University student from San Ramon. All three were patients who were prescribed a myriad of drugs. Sang was licensed to practice medicine in California in 1997 and opened a storefront medical office in Roland Heights in 2005. During the time frame when nine of her patients died in less than three years, Sang took in $5 million from her clinic. In closing arguments, prosecutors told jurors that in dozens of instances, Sang kept no medical records, and in many instances, she faked medical records when authorities began investigating. Sang surrendered her medical license in 2012 and has been behind bars in lieu of a $3 million bail since her arrest. She returns to court on December 14 for sentencing when she faces up to life in state prison. An Orange County Social Services Agency group counselor has been charged for making fraudulent statements relating to his workers' compensation claim, which cost the County of Orange more than $30,000. 40-year-old Malul Tafua of Orange is charged with two felony counts of insurance fraud and two felony counts of making fraudulent statements. He is out of custody on $20,000 bail. If convicted, he faces a maximum sentence of eight years in state prison. Tafua claimed that he injured his right shoulder and elbow restraining someone while working at Orangewood Children's Home. He told his doctor that he was unable to use his right arm. The county could not accommodate that restriction and placed him on temporary total disability. But at the same time, Tafua is accused of bench pressing 315 pounds in a gym. During a medical appointment with his doctor the following day, Tafua allegedly claimed that his pain had not improved and that he had been complying with his treatment. The county began investigating this case after observing these inconsistencies in his statements and what was observed at the gym and what activities he told the doctor he was capable of performing. And in regulatory news... 
The Office of Self-Insurance Plans is part of the Department of Industrial Relations that is responsible for the oversight and regulation of workers' compensation self-insurance in California. OSIP is also responsible for establishing and ensuring that security deposits are posted by self-insurers in amounts sufficient to collateralize against potential defaults. And now OSIP has posted proposed regulations attempting to streamline self-insurance procedures and eliminate some existing requirements. A public hearing has been scheduled at 10 o'clock a.m. on December 21, 2015 in the conference room at the Office of Self-Insurance Plans, 11050 Olson Drive, Suite 230 in Rancho Cordova. Members of the public may also submit written comments on the regulations until 5 p.m. that day. Several amendments make substantive changes to clarify and simplify the documentation and evaluation of the financial qualifications of self-insureds. Existing requirements pertaining to claims loss history and evaluation of illness prevention programs are to be eliminated. The rulemaking also updates existing forms, implements new forms in some cases, and provides for an online platform for submission of annual reports by self-insureds. The proposed rulemaking does not implement any new reporting requirements and should not uh, have an adverse financial impact on businesses. The notice and the text of regulations can be found on the proposed regulations page of the DWC website. And in medical news, a new study published in the British Medical Journal claims that doctors may be providing more care than necessary to lower the risks of malpractice claims. This may also be driving up medical costs. The researchers found that doctors who provided the most costly care were also least likely to be sued during the time frame of the study. Critics of the U.S. malpractice system have often suggested it encourages defensive medicine in order to stave off lawsuits. The number one concern voiced by many physicians is malpractice risk. Researchers examined data looking specifically at whether doctors within seven medical specialties were less likely to face lawsuits in the year following racking up higher than average hospital charges and the data showed that the higher-spending physicians got sued less often than low-spending physicians. Thus, they conclude there is a correlation between spending and a risk of being named as a defendant on a lawsuit. And in regulatory news, the U.S. workers' compensation market saw solid gains in 2014, thanks in part to premium increases and favorable claims frequency. This was the fourth consecutive year in which the industry reported improved results. And according to the report by A.M. Best, the U.S. workers' compensation combined ratio came in at 101.5% for 2014. A combined ratio under 100% is considered healthy, and the current number reflects steady improvement compared to the 118.1% ratio in 2010. Net premiums written came in at 
46.8 billion in 2014, a steady climb from 34 billion dollars in 2010. AMBEST noted the improvement, but pointed out that the positives are near term as uncertainty remains about the industry in the longer term. And several industry giants lost market share in 2014. Liberty Mutual Insurance's workers' compensation net premium for 2014 dropped 27.5%. The decline was enough to knock it from second to fifth place. A Liberty spokesperson said the drop is part of a strategy to rid itself of weak accounts. American International Group also lost ground. AIG booked $2.4 billion during 2014 for a 5.2% market share and a third place. That's 10.4% drop from what AIG achieved in 2013 when it produced more than $2.7 billion in premiums, written for a 6.2% market share and fourth place. Other top-ranked U.S. workers' compensation carriers generally maintained their rankings and some increased premiums. Top-rated Travelers Group, for example, achieved $3.8 billion in premiums during 2014 for an 8.2% market share. That number is 4.3% higher than the $3.68 billion it produced in 2013. Second place Hartford Insurance Group also grew with $3 billion written during 2014 for a 6.4% share of the market, 1.4% higher than the $2.97 billion generated in 2013. The audit unit of the DWC has completed its revision of the benefit notice manual which contains sample benefit notices and the DWC thanked the workers' compensation community for its suggestions, which improved the quality and clarity of the benefit notices. The safe harbor provision of Section 9810 of the regulations provides that benefit notices using the samples are presumed to be adequate notice to the employee and shall not be subject to audit penalties. The revisions to the recently approved benefit notice regulations include elimination of the requirement to provide fact sheets as attachments to some notices, and a reduction of the requirement to provide a QME panel request form with some notices. The new regs will eliminate a warning notice language at the top of some of these notices, and employees and their attorneys may choose to receive electronic service. The benefit notice regulations take effect on January 1, 2016. The revised notices may not be used before that date. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, iPod, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folst, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.